Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. With the New Books Network, this is New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm your host, Keith Simmons. Whether through video games, cinema, or tourism, Brazil's favelas have fascinated Brazilians as well as international travelers. Violence is commonly associated with favelas, but few may understand the ways in which violence plays an economic and cultural role in Brazil. Dr. Erica Rob Larkins is an associate professor at the University of Oklahoma and the author of The Spectacular Favela, Violence in Modern Brazil. Her research shows that violence in Rocina, Rio de Janeiro's largest favela, is part of a larger spectacle involving residents, traffickers, police, tourists, and even American rap stars. Dr. Larkins joins the New Books Network from Brazil. Dr. Larkins, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, I was wondering if you could just first start by telling us a little bit about your background um, in terms of how you got interested in what you're studying today. Sure. Um, And this is always like one of those places where people have their their initiation to Brazil story. So um, in in this case, this is sort of how I got to, to where I am now. And it's a great example of how the, the choices that your parents make uh, come to influence the, the life that you have as a, as a person and as an adult. So um, growing up, my mom was really interested in Brazilian music and started playing in a, uh, a bateria or like a, a marching percussion band and began to make trips to Brazil to study music. And when she did that, she would take me and my brothers with her. So I started coming to Brazil with her and then fell in love with Brazil and developed my own relationship with Brazil, which eventually led me to to pursue, um, you know, more academic studies. And so, where did you, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. keep going, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's okay. So, and, and one of the things that I noticed um, when I was coming to Brazil a lot, you know, in these sort of formative years was is that, you know, you can't come to Rio, you can't go to Sao Paulo or to Salvador, to any big city in Brazil, without really noticing the way that inequality is inscribed on the physical landscape. So I remember, you know, looking out the window of cars and taxis at favelas and thinking that they looked like very interesting places and wondering, you know, what life was like there. And I also, you know, in this music scene that she was part of, we knew lots of people that lived in favelas. And so I already sort of had, um, I didn't have the not being Brazilian, I didn't have these sort of um, conceptions about about life there, or at least uh, or, or concerns about safety or things like that that are, are typical of Brazilians. Interesting. And so, I guess to that point, that's partially what drew you to the favela of Roxina, correct? Yeah, I think you know, Rocinha. Uh, I mean, I knew I wanted to work in Rio. Um, I've been other places in Brazil, and, and Rio for me, you know, is really has been for a long time in the center of my universe. It's a city that I love. 
so much despite all of the problems and, and challenges that are here. And so once I knew that I wanted to, to do research and field work in Rio, it became a matter of, okay, well, which favela? And if you're going to study, you know, tourism um, and issues of violence and media and representation, it really, Hosinia is the place to do that because it's the biggest, because of where it's located, um, you know, in the really affluent part of the city, because of, its, of, of sort of all of the history and the way that it's presented in the media, it is the spectacular favela. So I knew I had to somehow end up there. And I was wondering if you could perhaps talk a little bit about the research process um, in terms of how many trips you might have made, the the duration, uh, things like that. Sure. So I, I started coming, you know, I, I was a doctoral student and trying to figure out exactly what kind of you know, project I was going to do for, for my graduate work. And so I, I had a couple of stops and starts and I had all kinds of interesting projects that didn't work out. I had a project on psychic surgeons, you know, people that do uh, surgeries with no anesthesia. I had a project on sex tourism in Rio. That didn't work out. Um, and so I started coming here and kind of trying out different projects and doing exploratory research in 2005. And then by 2006, I was pretty, you know, settled on, on Hosinia and, and, and on a project that had to do with violence and commodification and tourism and issues of that in favelas in Rio. And so I was here part of 2006, I was here part of 2007, and then in 2008, I arrived to do, to do field work, to do the long-term field work, and stayed through 2010. And then I've been back um, every year since then. I, I had another long stint of research from 2013 to 2014, which was a very different time in Rio, a very different time in Hosinia. Um, and now here I am here again. <laughs> so I've been, I really, it's been about 10 years now of, um, over 10 years now of, of being here and engaging in this research project in one way or another, which has allowed me to really follow the trajectory of the community over time. And I feel like has given me a better perspective for that reason. And I think particularly when you talk about um, the trajectory of the community, one of the areas that I think some of our listeners aren't really quite aware of is that um, favelas actually go back um, quite a ways in terms of, of Brazil's history. So um, if possible, could you recount some of that for us in terms of, of where favelas sort of come from and their relationship with the state? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the favela, if you think about the roots of the favela and the roots of the issues it gave birth to the favela, where we have to go all the way back to the beginning, um, you know, of Brazil. And you know, favelas in Rio, at least, you know, formally start, um, you know, the, the point that most historians mark has to do with the moment of emancipation, um, you know, where people are, are being freed and are moving out of, you know, uh, of rural slave plantations into the city. There's a large free population um, in the city that's also looking for housing. And so there's this moment in Rio where there's not enough housing for people. The city is growing. And, and this, is an, this is a story that's it's true in every big city in Brazil. Um, so poor people um, without a lot of resources um, put out by the state began to build their own housing and look for their own housing and try to find ways to improve their own lives. So we're talking about people that are poor, people that are former slaves. Um, after a while, there's also this big wave of, of migration from the northeast of the country um, into the, to the cities of the south, and that creates um, even more people. And they moved to these hillside favelas, at least initially it's hillsides now. It's uh, most favelas in Rio 
are not like that picturesque, <laughs> the picturesque favela on the cover of my book, but are rather, um, you know, on a plane or, or, or not nearly so photogenic, let's say. But initially, people move onto these, these hillsides, and they begin to construct houses. Um, and if you look at really old photos, there's there's a number of collections of these photos that are just fascinating. You know, initially they're they're mud kind of huts or wooden shacks, that kind of thing. Over time, as people become more confident that they're not going to be removed, they begin to invest more time in um, in, their, in building their houses. So you get bricks and um, you know things that are more permanent. And then you get something today. Eventually, it morphs into something like today, which is Hosina, which is very much you know, they call it the favela of condominios, which is, you know, these very tall buildings um, that are very well constructed and certainly aren't going anywhere. So the, the, the building history of, of it goes back a long time, but the social issues around inequality, access to housing, discrimination, poverty, all that stuff really goes back to the very beginning of Brazilian history. And I think in particular, when you're talking about Rosina, um, one of the things that kind of stands out in the book is the creation of um, spectacles or, or the creation of, of essentially um, commodities. And uh, it goes beyond uh, simply commodities related to violence, but also simply wanting to consume um, products themselves. Um, and, and for example, um, Beto, who is, is one of the people that is talked about um, in the first part of the book, um, just desires a lot of common consumer goods that are seen um, in other parts of the state uh, and other parts of, of Brazil. So uh, I guess my, my question is, um, how did you eventually come up with this idea that, um, that the favelas are all part of these spectacles and that spectacles really go beyond simply um, displaying violence? Um, so I would I would answer, I think there's a, a couple of interesting questions in there. Um, you know, one of them has to do with this question around consumer goods, right, and how um, uh, regimes of consumption are implicated in all of the things that I talk about in the book. And this, this has a lot to do with inequality. So Beto is a trafficker. He is a, a poor, black, young trafficker who has grown up in poverty and very much sees um, success and middle-class status as being linked to his ability to buy certain things. Uh, Nikes, iPhones, gold, jewelry, um, you know, uh, um, um, like designer clothing, all of these things that are very much part, a part of class status in Brazil um, and everywhere. And, you know, yes, in the U.S., we, you know, people pay attention to these things like who has a coach purse or, or that kind of thing. But in Brazil, there, I, I feel like there's a way in which it's even more pronounced. It, the, the acquisition of these kinds of goods really says a lot about your ability to sort of move up in your class status. And so people in Hosinia, um, like people in other places, are very much interested in obtaining these goods because it says something about where they fit into the social hierarchy. So that's the, the, the sort of answer to the, the consumption question. Um, and in a lot of ways, the desire to consume and achieve those things very much informs the decision of young men to start engaging in organized crime. I was interviewing someone a couple of days ago uh, for a different project. He used it for a project on, on oh, that deals with prisons in Brazil. And he was just, this young man was describing why he had begun to, to assault people, why he was doing stick-ups, 
you know, down in the wealthy part of the city. And he said, listen, you know, my mom doesn't have any condition to give me, you know, this stuff. And I would go down to the beach and I would see these rich kids and I would say, how come he gets to have that stuff and I don't? And so after a while, I just got a gun and I started taking it because it wasn't fair. Um, which is not to condone this kind of behavior, but to say that this is the way that people are understanding um, how these goods and consumption fit into this larger process. Uh, then the second question that you asked is really about spectacle. And by spectacle, you know, to put it the most in the most straightforward terms, I really mean, you know, the process by which something is sort of made flashy or made into a show, um, something that's visually arresting, and that in 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 that process you can. It's both a process of emphasizing something and a process of hiding other things. So when I say that, you know, violence in, in Hosinia has become a spectacle, right? Uh, for example, let's say, you know, police violence. I talk about the police and certain parts of the police as being very interested in, in producing these spectacles. One of the spectacles is efficiency, right? And this is because most of the time police in Brazil are seen as not very efficient and not very honest. So when you make a spectacle that, 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 emphasizes efficiency. You're both saying, look, we can be efficient. And you're also saying, don't look at the ways that we're not. <laughs> so the spectacle has this sort of dual um, face to it. And I think that's one of the things that I'm, that I'm trying to sort of bring out in the book is that everybody is playing with spectacle in one way or another. Everyone is using it and, and, and using it to both draw attention to certain things and to hide others. And one of the parts of the book that I absolutely enjoyed is when you're talking about um, spectacle related to um, the police, as you just described. Um, and, and in the beginning of Chapter 2, um, you're talking about an incident in which uh, the police are coming to invade and, and go after some traffickers. And um, it's well known that they're actually coming into the favela, and it's to the point that um, drug traffickers actually lay out um, some of their product so that the police will be able to um, obtain that and, and to be able to show, um, whether it's for a national or an international audience, that we are indeed doing something about this problem. Um, so I wonder if you could perhaps just go into a little bit more um, detail about that spectacle and um, how committed, I think, both the state and traffickers are to ensuring that the spectacle is one that's seen as being authentic? Hmm, I think that's another good question. I mean, absolutely, you know, when I describe that, it's like, yes, we all knew about it beforehand. You know, everybody always knew when there was an invasion. And a lot of times the phone call would come from somebody that was in prison, which is a whole other um, thing. So, you know, how is it that the guy that's incarcerated can have a cell phone to call somebody in the favela to say, hey, we all inside here, we all heard the police are coming tomorrow. You know, how is that possible <laughs> is a very good question. Um, but, yeah, it was definitely known beforehand. Um, most of the time there was a few exceptions to this. Um, and there's also an important distinction between the time period that I'm writing about and now. And I, I'd love to return to that because now it's not the same way. And I, I want to make sure that, that I I get to talking about the ways in which things have changed in Hosinia. But during this time, yes, you know, you'd be on the motorcycle taxi. Somebody would say, ah, yeah, you know, there's going to be an invasion, right? You know, you should probably make sure that, you know, you're not around or everybody knows this thing is going to happen. And so there, there was definitely um, a fair amount of warning that came beforehand. And then that what we saw was very patterned uh, in terms of, you know, it always being in the morning, it always happening in a certain way. And, and you know, 
it, it's hard to imagine that this is a real crime-fighting effort because, you know, even you and I could say, like, well, well of course that's not going to work. <laughs> I mean, if all the criminals know when you're coming, then, you know, how is that actually going to be effective? So the reason that I, that I talk about that is because it goes towards illustrating the ways in which the police and the traffickers are part of the same system and seem to be working together. And it's not all police, right? It, it, but, but it's certainly enough, and it's enough in the system and the way that things work that there's that, that nothing ever really changes despite the fact that every day police go and invade a favela in Rio, nothing has changed. And, and that's, I think, speaks an awful lot to the relationship between the institution of traffic, trafficking and the institution of the police. How can it not be different after all of these years and, you know, all of, especially with these new policies that have come into place and we're supposed to change everything? Nothing, nothing has changed. You look at the paper and it's the same thing that you would read in 2005, despite millions of dollars and tons and tons of people killed. Um, so clearly it's not, <laughs> it, it's not working. It's a spectacle and an ineffective one. Um, and so um, now I'm off track, <laughs> but I can't remember where we started. Oh, that's quite all right. And and uh, I think what you just mentioned is actually very interesting because, um, you know, we've laid out sort of the historical trajectory for favelas. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about violence um, and how that's uh, kind of become a very uh, well-associated characteristic with favelas. And mm-hmm. to that point, I think it's also now carried over into um, cultural spectacles uh, in relation to, um, as you talk about in the beginning of Chapter 3, um, that the favela is something that becomes commodified, which um, seems interesting that it's now uh, commodified between, or, or that you have people that are taking part of this commodification, and that it's done uh, with both media and it's also done with tourism. Um, so I think dealing with this this idea that the favela has become a media commodity. Um, one incident that you talk about, which I think is extremely fascinating, is that Ja Rule, um, the rapper, actually visits uh, in 2008, which um, a lot of rappers, I think, talk about this sort of thing, mm-hmm. um, or they'd like to show it in, in, in videos of some sort, but to actually visit and do a concert seems completely different. So I wonder if you could perhaps recount that particular story for us. Oh, it's so funny that you mentioned. So when you say Ja Rule, I'm, I'm like, wait, who knows? Because when we're in Brazil, everyone calls him Ja Huli. <laughs> so it took me like a really long time to actually figure out what everybody was talking about because they were like, yeah, Ja Huli's coming. Ja Huli's going to do a show. And I was like, who? You know, I had no idea who, who this person was, right? Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, this is one of those examples. You know, the, the, the favela has a history. It's, it, in some ways, Ja Huli is... You know, Ja Rule is, is, is drawing upon this longer history. You know, Michael Jackson made this really famous video um, that's part in Salvador and part in, in the favela in Rio, which is really, really important um, in sort of disseminating these images of the favela globally. Um, you know, later you have, I think this happens after Ja Rule, but you have like, you know, Beyonce, you have Snoop Dogg makes the video, you know, in Rio on the Salvador stairs. So he's, he's following already this, this kind of trajectory of people visiting Rio and visiting favelas and including them, American artists and including them in, in videos. Um, but this was, you know, this funny thing. So no one in the favela had really heard of him. Um, or, or maybe they knew like that one song and so they'd like sing you a little bit, you know, when you were like trying to figure out who, who Ja Huli was. Um, but no one really knew. So, so this was also kind of funny because it, it was for the population. It wasn't 
such an it was like it wasn't such an honor to be visited because they didn't know who he was. So they actually had to do this this project of hyping up interest. So they had this car that would drive around the favela with a big megaphone and, you know, had this, it was plastered with this picture of, of him on the side, you know, wearing this white suit with this Rolex smoking this cigar. And it would talk about, at the Corvo Duesti bus station in two weeks, the American artist Chahuli is coming, you know, and, and it was like, it was so deafeningly loud, you, you couldn't escape. And, and the fact that there was this American artist, it was a global event, you know, people kind of started getting swept up in it. And the traffickers were quite happy about this. I thought, oh, I wonder, you know, of course, there was all kinds of speculation. You know, were they paying for it? Who was funding it? Who was going to pay for the concert, which had a relatively low price tag um, on it for tickets? And, you know, after a while, I realized, like, oh, this is a great thing for them because think of all the drugs they get to sell. It creates more um, traffic, you know, more people in the favela, more potential clients and customers, which is something that they're always thinking about. So, so many times when I was trying to understand why they would allow X, Y, or Z, it's really business. Like, if it was a good business decision for them, they would take it. So, you know, Ja Rule in the favela was a great business decision. Um, of course, he came. <laughs> he performed. He got there three hours late. He was really drunk. He couldn't remember the words to his own songs. Um, you know, there was all these, like, dancers on stage. He was groping. People thought he would put on a pretty terrible performance uh, all around. But, but that wasn't even really the point. The point was is that, you know, he came and, that, and, and visited and gave the show, and, and that alone was a kind of an enjoyable spectacle for people. And I think another interesting part of the media spectacle um, that you talk about in Chapter 3 uh, relates to violence, um, again, and, and the way that it's commodified through um, video games and through uh, movies. Um, for example, when you mentioned uh, Modern Warfare 2, that was one of the things that caused me my ears to perk up because like, oh, I, I remember that part of the game because <laughs> I, I happened to play it. Um, and then I remember visiting Brazil um, a couple years after that. And it just seemed so odd that you have that kind of juxtaposition. And that's for, unfortunately, for millions of players, that's really the only vision that they would have gotten from Brazil. But um, when you also talk about Elite Squad, um, which is a, a very popular movie related to Bopi, um, or or Brazil's uh, basically special police forces. Um, you mentioned something that I wonder if you could tell our readers about in terms of the way that that movie um, was received among some of the residents of the favela. Sure, um, and, and actually, this is a this is a great. I, I love. I'm glad to get a chance to tell this story. So, you know, this movie is based on a book um, that is that, that one of the two of the co-authors of the book were actually Bote officers. So it's one of these cases where it's fictional, but everybody knows that it's only fictional so that they can say the truth and get away with it. So before they they made the film, which um, you know had a, a famous director, and, and there was a lot of hype around it. They were just about to release it. And, you know, going to the movies is not a, a, a really cheap thing in Brazil. It's pretty expensive to go to the movies. So not everyone in the favela, certainly, is going to be able to afford to go to a movie. There's also a very robust pirating, a sort of DVD pirating, pirating industry here. So right before the film was supposed to come out, somebody leaked a pirated copy of Elite Squad, which was quickly reproduced all over the city and probably all over the country. And within, you know, I, I mean, I imagine this sort of like crackling, like lightning, um, every single street corner, somebody was selling a pirated DVD of this movie. So everyone in the favela had access to it. 
um, before uh, people were able to even see it in theaters. And I remember watching it with, with friends at the time, and, and it was it was so, in some ways, it's, it's so violent. Um, so it's, it's also kind of astounding in that sense. But everybody thought it was funny. I mean, I was kind of like, oh, my gosh, they're torturing this person. I really can't handle this. Um, and, and so many of the people that I was watching with it were just laughing and, and not, not because, you know, it was humorous, but because it was so true and so typical. And, and it wasn't just the, the depictions of the police. It was also the depictions of the middle class. Um, you know, there's a lot of very, I think, smart depictions of middle class university students reading Foucault and not recognizing their own privilege. And, and those parts were also very funny to people because they recognized, you know, the critique that was being made uh, of, of that. And, and certainly, yes, the video games, you know, that's a, a big place where people uh, encounter the favela. And I, I would find, you know, when I would ask the tourists, you know, what kinds of media have you seen? Usually, you know, City of God was very common. And also the video games were very common as well. And, and I, I talk about in the book that the representation of the favela in the video game is, is very problematic because it's a, it's a favela that's only occupied by police and traffickers. It has no other people. It's basically empty, which is a, a very incorrect and problematic representation of a place that's really teeming with a lot of human life and a, a lot of human life that's really affected by this ongoing battle between the two of them. So the idea that you can kind of play at one of these roles and not actually shoot an innocent bystander um, is pretty wrong and, and, and problematic in a number of ways. I wonder, have you um, perhaps presented that, that idea to any of your students? And um, have you gotten any sort of reaction from them when you talk about how this representation of of a favela in modern warfare is a little bit off. Yeah, I've talked with them about I've talked with them about these kinds of things in class, and 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 you know a lot of times you get this, you know, video games is a it's a whole big topic, right? You know, and and it's a topic that um, a lot of people get very fired up about because I'm not saying that the video game makes you violent, um, and that's usually where you start these conversations with students. They, you know, especially students that like video games will be like, oh, I really, really deeply object to that, right? That's not what I'm, I'm objecting to. <laughs> I'm objecting to the representation embedded in the video game and how you consume that without thinking very much about the meaning of that because you don't have another point of context. Um, so I think here for me, it's a, it's a representational violence. It's a way in which things are omitted. It's a spectacle of playing that's foregrounding the war and backgrounding all these other things. Um, but usually they like it. They think it's fun to talk about, you know. Anytime a professor can talk about something that they actually do in their lives it tends to make them pretty happy. Um, and so I've, I've found that, that those kinds of conversations about media that they've seen or, or games they've played are usually really rich and interesting for me. But I do want to say one other thing. You asked about these sort of commodified products and um, these other images of the favela. And, and there's really been a boom in these. Like I'm starting to have this collection of even more I call it sort of favela ink in the book. It's like these commodified um, and valuable images of the favela that travel. My son has a favela toothbrush. It literally is a toothbrush that has the favela, you know, on it um, that I bought at like a boutique in the nice part of the city. Um, you can find iPhone cases with the favela on them. All these things are very expensive. They're not aimed at people that live in the favela, but they're aimed, I think, at foreigners because I've never seen a Brazilian buy one. Um, I don't think that Brazilians... Uh, 
consume, we would want to, to be consuming that sort of architectural uh, icon of the favela in the same way. I've certainly never seen anyone carrying a favela handbag, a Brazilian, but I've seen lots of foreigners carrying expensive Brazilian favela or expensive favela handbags. So this stuff is really proliferating and seems to be mainstreaming even more. So then the question is, you know, what does it mean to someone when they look at the favela that's on their favela toothbrush? Um, you know, and that's maybe something for a future project to understand a little more about how these kind of more benign, is this an architectural representation of the favela? What does that mean to people? I I, I can't believe they actually make favela toothbrushes. And, <laughs> I'll have to take a picture for you. <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be fantastic to add on um, for our show so that our, our viewers will be able to, to see that as well. Um, and I think that's also really interesting because it kind of leads into uh, my next question, which, um, you know, for some people, simply consuming um, the favela from a distance is not enough, uh, whether it's through video games or through movies um, and perhaps even through some of these commercial products. Um, and one of the things that's become somewhat of a boom, uh, I think particularly over this past decade, um, has been favela tourism. So, um, I was wondering if you could perhaps explain um, that concept uh, for our listeners and uh, if you could perhaps highlight some of the potential issues that, that come up in terms of whether or not uh, it's ethical to engage in, in favela tourism. Right. And, and this is a big focus in the book. And, and this was really where my research started. You know, when I first moved to Hostinia, I, this, is, this is what I wanted to know. How is this tourism working? You know, how is it organizing the community? What do community members think about it? You know, and how are people touring and what are, they, what are people from the outside bringing to that? Um, and then it was really in trying to understand that that I began to unravel the other parts of, of the book. And so this is really, this is absolutely central. And this is also key to like the, the main argument of the book, which is that we, we have to see these forms of commodification, whether or not it's the products or the people that are coming and, and consuming the favela as part of the overall landscape of violence in this place. So it's not just that people are shooting at one another. It's not just that people are deprived of, you know, the right to meet their, their basic human needs or they're living with substandard health care or bad sewage. It's also that there's, there's, products, there, there's money, there's markets that are built on top of those, those issues, and that alone is itself a form of violence. Um, so that gave me a chance at least to, to make sure that I stated the main argument of the book. <laughs> but the point here about the, about the tourism, right? So favela tourism has been going on for a long time. Slum tourism is incredibly old. Um, it has a very long history, not just in Rio, but it, all over the world, and it's something that you find in lots and lots of different places. The favela has become part of what it means to see Rio. I've heard people, I, I can't find any hard, hard data on this as much as I've tried, but people say, tour operators, the official tourism people, bureaus and stuff say that after the Pangea Sucre, the, the Cristo Redentor and the beach, that the favela is the most visited place by tourists in the city of Rio which is pretty astounding um, and, and I think significant because it means that it's, an it's a lot of people. It, the favela tours appear in all of the tour books. Oftentimes, if you get off a cruise ship and the itinerary for Rio has been predetermined for you, you're going to go to the favela. So it has now become, if you don't see the favela, you didn't see Rio. And um, so sometimes people aren't even making like these choices to go see it. It's not because they're like, ooh, we want to go. It's just part of an itinerary already. 
um, which I think is, is, is really interesting because it, it tells you a lot about how it's been transformed from really like a no-go place to like the, a yes-you-must-see place. <laughs> but the tourism itself is, is very problematic. Um, people always say, well, gosh, you know, you write about favela tourism. Should we still go? And I do say that, yes, you should still go but that you should go with an awareness of, of the fact that what you're doing is about you and not about the people that you're going to see or the place that you're going to see. Um, and I say this because, you know, the, the tours, even the best of the tours, I can imagine all these tour operators out there hating me for saying these kinds of things, but even the best of the tours, um, you know, there it, who makes the narrative of the tour? Who gets to decide what's important in the community? There, it's not the people that live there. The tours are run by outsiders for the most part. Um, they have to con, they have to conform their narrative to something that makes sense with tourists. They can only be there for a limited amount of time. They they have all these things. There's all these constraints in the narrative that can be presented, and so it's always going to be partial and problematic because you don't get a whole vision of what life is like in an hour. Um, or an hour and a half <laughs> when you see, you know, one tiny corner. So the tours are, are a problem from a representational standpoint because what you see is not everything. Um, they're also a problem from a, sort of an organizational standpoint because they don't really make an impact in the community in terms of alleviating poverty. I asked people, you know, I asked hundreds of residents, can you tell me something that the tours have done to change life here for the better? And nobody could name anything. No one. Could name a single infrastructural or financial or uh, leisure-related an improvement that came as a result of the presence of tourists, and that really goes counter to what the guides tend to say. And maybe they have the best of intentions, but if you ask people for their their perceptions, they don't feel like tourism and tourists have made any difference. And this is really contrary to the the sort of mm, narrative of tourism, which is which really tells tourists that their presence is making this huge difference and they're performing this kind of charity by visiting and they're crossing these social lines and yeah, kind of, but not really, or I guess better, not enough. It's not enough to just go and see. And so um, when I say you should go, but you should know that it's about you and not about the place, that's what I mean. And I think that leads um, actually perfectly into um, the next part of what I wanted to talk about, which is, um, the large tourism spectacle that's going to take place um, in summer of 2016, which is uh, the Summer Olympics um, in Brazil. And so there are going to be um, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of global visitors coming um, to Brazil um, to observe these games. And so um, I wonder if you could talk um, to us a little bit about how pacification um, works into some of this broader strategy for the government and perhaps some of the responses that people have given um, to pacification through things like protests and, and I guess in another way, it's to try to determine, um, you know, if someone were to travel uh, to Brazil that's, that's listening to our interview, um, is there anything else that they should keep in mind as they're observing everything around them? Sure. Well, let me let me go back a little bit um, and maybe say something just about what pacification is quickly, um, since maybe not everybody has been following as much maybe as we have. And basically, you know, when Rio got the the world, I mean, it started really with the World Cup, right? And 
and, and with the projection of the Olympics coming, this is really a moment, you know, for Rio to be thinking about how to make some changes, um, you know, in a city that is, that is very unequal and is divided in its access to, to infrastructure and, and leisure and all these kinds of things. So, you know, one of the things that people started saying is, we're going to have to do something about these favelas, right? This is obviously like a, a even thinking about the problem like that, thinking about it like a favela problem is already a problem. Um, but, you know, you have a, a policing, a policing, a kind of policing that's not working, right? Um, like I said, it's like nothing has changed in all these years. And the police are still really violent. And there's still an extreme level of inequality. And we have these whole pockets of the city that are controlled by, you know, armed drug traffickers that aren't the state. You know, not to be cynical, but all of these things are pretty inconsistent with the kind of, image that one would need to host an Olympics or a World Cup. And so these inconsistencies, you know, have to be ironed out. And, and I'm going to sound really cynical when I say all this, but I, I guess since the way the classification has gone, I, it's really hard to be anything but cynical. So they decided, you know, taking some cues from, you know, Giuliani era in New York and other kinds of, um, you know, uh, peacekeeping missions in Haiti and a bunch of other things go into this sort of design of this program. But the, the idea is, is that certain favelas need to be retaken over by the government and occupied by a police and a police that doesn't leave, but a police that stays and is a proximity police force that, that, that helps to manage the community in the way that the traffickers historically have. And this is all well and good, right? As an idea, it's lovely. It's just that in practice, it doesn't, it didn't work that way. Um, and maybe it never should have even been that way. Maybe if you wanted to retake these communities, you should have first addressed uh, issues of basic sanitation or education uh, or healthcare, which were things that residents identified as problems, not security. Um, but instead, they did security first. And, and in the end, it, it really did not work very well because of a number of flaws with the policy. Um, and, and now I would say that, you know, if you say pacification in Rio, you know, to anyone from, you know, your taxi driver to someone that lives in the favela to anyone that lives, you know, in the middle class, they're all going to snort because it's just just has so not worked out the way that it was supposed to. Um, and then, you know, of course, everyone asks, well, maybe it wasn't supposed to work out and then you get really cynical. <laughs> but you know, yes, there's going to be this big, this you know, enormous spectacle of the Olympics. Um, I have a lot of faith that it's going to go just fine. People ask me a lot, you know, uh, people ask a lot around the World Cup is, can Brazil pull it off? And I think that's a narrative that is legitimate in some ways, but in other ways is a story to, to sell stories about Brazil's and Rio's, um, you know, unpreparedness for the mega events. It will be beautiful. Um, everything in Brazil is beautiful, even if it's dysfunctional. And I think it will be, it will be fine. It will go well and, and all of that. A lot of people will visit the favela and um, a lot of people will see, you know, just a tiny fraction of, of what life is like because they'll really be concentrated around the sporting events. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, and it's all, it is, it is a, a really crazy and intense time. Um, you know, the, the way that the city has been changed in terms of infrastructure to cater to the Olympics and the World Cup is a huge issue because, you know, really we have to ask whether or not the kinds of changes and the kinds of building that's been done benefits the city and the residents of the city, uh, or is it benefiting, you know, the hosting of, of these events? And I think most people feel that it really has not been a good thing for the city and isn't going to generate revenue for the city. And, you know, Brazil is having, is passing through a big economic crisis right now. So all of these concerns become even more in the fore.
And I think um, one other question I'd like to ask, um, I think, before we go is um, just in terms of, of your book itself and um, a lot of research related to, to anthropology that um, looks into the favela. And um, when you're able to talk about how there might be issues that are coming up related to, um, you know, the World Cup in, in uh, 2014 is as well as uh, the Olympics in 2016, um, and these broader issues with the favela, um, do you have any sense of how the government receives um, this type of research, if it's if it's even on their radar at all, or is it something that's um, largely ignored? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's an interesting question, you know. I mean, I would, of course, love if they would be reading this kind of research. Um, you know, I think... I really do believe that there's a lot of people that that know all these things are true, um, and I, I think even I, I, mean, I can give you perhaps a better a better example in terms of of police. Let's just say for for just to, to tie it completely to a certain part of the government, there are certainly people within the police force that, that recognize completely the need for reform and are calling for that reform, and I think are really trying to do really good work. When you ask them about it, though, they'll say the whole system is so stacked against any kind of change. So how can you dismantle something, um, you know, that's that, that's pulling entirely the other way? And so I think that 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 does is it, it does everybody know the police need reforms? Probably. Is it really hard practically to make that happen? Yes. You know, does the government know that these issues of inequality are enormous and, and need to be addressed in order for Brazil to move forward and be a different kind of place? Absolutely. But can it be moved forward? So I don't, I don't always know that it's about a will, but it's about a, a way in which the, the, the larger, there's a larger constraint of the way that, that the system works. And, and, it, and it's also up to people. I mean, people have to want there to be greater equality. And, and a lot of times in Brazil, they don't. Or maybe they want to, in principle, and maybe this is every, this is everywhere. This isn't just Brazil, you know. Um, you know, does everybody really want to pay more money? Does everyone really want to pay to shoulder the cost of what it would mean to make better living wages for people of the planet over? Maybe in an ideal way, yes. But when it comes down to like you actually having to pay more, I think people oftentimes get hung up there. And I see that in Brazil. I see the idealism, and yet at the same time, a lot of people don't take the actual the the the, the concrete action to make something like that happen. And so I see that until like individual people and people with power are, are interested in making those kinds of changes, I just don't know how we would fix anything. Well, Dr. Larkin, I would hate for us to leave on um, a somewhat of a pessimistic note, but I think a very important one. Um, so I wonder if Sorry. you could just tell us. No, no, no. It's it's quite all right. I think we've had a, a very uh, fascinating discussion. Um, but I wonder if you could perhaps tell us um, what you might be researching currently. You're you're joining us um, via phone from Rio, so um, I'm sure our listeners would be curious as to what you're currently working on now. And, and hopefully that will leave us on less of a pessimistic note. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. Um, I'm right now. I, uh, you know, I have this this interest in sort of the intersection of violence and inequality and markets. And so, I my new research project that I've that I've been developing here and I'll carry forward into the next year uh, looks at private security in Rio. And this is basically rent-a-cops. Um, 
So there's an enormous private security force in the city and in Brazil in general. It's one that's been growing a lot as a result of the World Cup and the Olympics. And yet we don't really know a whole lot about these men and women that perform private security duties. So what, I, what I'm doing this year, what I've started on and hope to finish um, in this next year leading up to and through the Olympics is to, um, I'm going through the training as a security guard um, to sort of see what kinds of training and classes they get and then following people from several different companies into the workplace. So this means standing around doing mall security with people. I'm not working the mall security, but I'm observing and participating in, in it by being there with them. Um, armed escort of, of jewelry, of guns, of valuables, armored cars, um, and, and personal security, of which the personal security, there's a big demand for the Olympics, as well. Um, so really trying to understand about how this private security sector is working and what its relationship with public security is in Rio. So, um, you know, maybe the next time we talk, you know, um, I'll, I'll be able to say more about about life in the in the private security sector and what it's like to look for shoplifters all day in the mall. Although I do have to say, in the event that you need someone to help you research this, just let me know because that sounds utterly fascinating um, as as a topic. Um, so. Again, if you need someone to to try to help out with that, <laughs> I I speak a little bit of Portuguese. Good, and I good. Can brush up on Perfect. it pretty quick. So let's try to set it up for the Olympics. For the Olympics, <laughs> sounds good, right? <laughs> it sounds great. Sounds great. Well, uh, Dr. Larkins, we'd like to thank you again uh, for taking the time to speak with us today. Um, Dr. Erica Larkins is the author of the spectacular favela: Violence in Modern Brazil, which is available through the University of California Press. Um, once again, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Thank you once again for joining us. For new books in Latin American studies, this has been Keith Simmons. Until next time.